And 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 mystery, right, is a, like that a, is a key aspect <laughs> of the Christian tradition. If I could just make that point, ideally um, it is. Yes, ideally, but it's one could say <laughs> that it is this um, commodified world in which we live. It is the the utilitarian utilitarian. Um, um, orientation that we tend to have, the, the direction that we tend to be pushed, that l- causes us, that pushes us away from delving into mystery. Hello, everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome to Movement Matters, episode four of season four. Feeling very pensive today. I didn't. Uh, I didn't really ramble about anything too personal in the last intro, so I think I need to catch up and and do that a little bit, and it'll tie into the episode based on who this guest is. Um. There's a very specific, I guess, somewhat obvious, I'll be honest. Yeah, I think it's kind of obvious the more that I think about it and the more that I realize it for myself that it's so inherent to how a lot of people operate. I guess I'm catching up and that is about justice, (laughs) something about justice. It seems pretty simple. If we are interested, if we are sincere about wanting there to be healing any, in any context, there clearly needs to be a level of trust. And if there is going to be any trust, again, in any context, all parties or the relevant parties have to have a shared sense of what is just. I'll admit, I have not really paid a lot of attention or put much thought into for most of my adult life, the need for justice and the value of justice. And I think that is a very, if there is any extent to which I have a layer of, which I know there is, by the way, I have many layers of privilege, so to speak, that are true to my experience uh, in our culture and just how I get to live my life. I don't deny any of that. I'm not going to be hard on myself about it. I'm not going to berate myself about it. But I see that it's true. And I see how quite obviously a lot of people have been needing to, (laughs) again, this is all very obvious. I feel like I'm just catching up. Been needing to pay attention to justice much more than I have. What seems more generally um, obvious these days is that we all have an interest in justice. And I don't know, I don't know how we're gonna, of course, I don't know how we're going to heal without it, 
But I have some more specific. I don't know how we're going to go about moving for getting what's just. I don't know how we're going to create a just world. I think it'll take a lot more time than some of us, including myself, maybe expected. I think patience is incredibly relevant. And I also think very specific reframing and reforming of some of our foundational concepts and ideas and agreements is necessary. I don't know if we can do it otherwise. So to be very specific, I'm obviously thinking about how uh, Donald Trump was not held accountable seemingly at all for his role in the terrorist attack, the terrorist actions, the extremist um, events of January 6th and beforehand. There were clearly relevant occurrences before that. He was not held accountable at all. And I've had some conversations with other people who I think share, who have a similar sort of privilege. I really don't want to use, you know, some of the more obvious language here because uh, I, I find it, I don't know. I don't think it's necessary at the moment. We'll get into it, but as you'll see with respect to this episode, but just the the reality of privilege, I'm very, very increasingly conscious of. And I have friends, very close friends, uh, who seem to think that a president is comparable to just a general and everyday citizen. And that is one of the obvious issues with how we are relating to this. Um, my capacity to do anything is different from, I think any elected official, but most certainly the president. And so is most likely your capacity. It's all different. There are, there are degrees of um, power and that sh I believe it's necessary to recognize how that obviously brings with it different responsibility. I don't think we have enough respect in general for the power that we end up with when we gain, uh, yeah, when we have influence. There is so much, so much to be that we have to learn to respect about our own power. And it's so, it, it's disheartening to see how we can't even really acknowledge that there is such a thing as power with respect to <laughs> that context. Like, there's no comparing me or, or you or any of us who could, so to speak, incite riots. There's no comparing us to the president. To make such comparisons is very discouraging, to say the least. Um, there's my rant. It's relevant because my guest is one of my oldest friends. We've been friends since I was in college, roughly you know, around 2004. We've known each other since um, high school. I was in high school in 2000 started and we've known each other since then, but we've been friends since roughly 2004. Um, he was actually a teacher at my high school. So we became friends later on. 
And he's one of my best friends. He's a dear friend. And we, we share many a good conversation. And I wanted to get him on here because he's uniquely um, equipped to discuss a few things, most obviously conventional perspectives or understandings of race and racism. And that is because he has a, obviously a, an, an African ancestry. He is quote unquote African American. And yeah, the, his work in general relates to race awareness and uh, as he would call it, I think the pandemic of racism, because it is not a, an issue that's unique to the United States. As, cer certain aspects, as he explains, are unique to the United States, of course. But the issue with blackness, so to speak, and racism in general, is not a unique American problem, to say the least. His way of addressing that general topic is is so welcome to me and something that I don't think I would do without someone like him uh, who does have an amazing sense of the history. He is a history teacher, has been a history teacher for most of his career, his adult life, um, and specifically really digs um, deep into the history of race and racism, uh, kind of piggybacking on most notably perhaps the work of Cornell West, and there's another gentleman he mentions that's relevant, actually ties into somatics, in fact. Um, but the capacity, the need to have these kinds of conversations and for him to be able to share what I know is important uh, was high on my list for season four here. And it was an honor for him to, to get him to join me and discuss a lot of this. I think actually I'm going to try to get him to come back again for another episode of season four because he's so... He's so competent. <laughs> He's so knowledgeable and so competent about all of this. Way, way more than, of course, I am. And I think my average guest is because often movement, so to speak, and the world of somatics doesn't inherently, doesn't have an obvious relationship to these aspects of our life and our shared experience that is, so to speak, race. It's not an obvious link for most people. So Ernest Miller, I don't think I named him yet, <laughs> my good friend and guest, Ernest Miller. Uh, before I say more, a quick note about one of our sponsors, Philadelphia Table Company. Would you like to turn your dining room or living room or office nook into the space of your dreams? Then contact Philadelphia Table Company. Not only do they do wood top tables. They also offer concrete and maybe eventually marble. Change any space into your dream space with Philadelphia Table Company. Dun, dun, dun. So Ernest, specifically what I got the most out of with this conversation were two things. The need for patience, obviously, I just want to preface these two so you really hear and, and listen for them. The need for patience and trusting that we're becoming, that this is a process of becoming, hence the title, Becoming a Beloved Community. But also we get into God. He, has, he is a, without a doubt, um, a member of a Roman Catholic religious order. He's a Christian brother. And 
we don't shy away from topics of, of course, religion and God. And there's a very specific issue that I bring up that we both really uh, wonderfully explore, which is, are we in relationship with God, so to speak, quote unquote, I don't pretend to have a, um, a singular meaning for that, that you obviously would know, but are we in relationship with God in a codependent way? as opposed to interdependent. And in all contexts, the question needs to be, to what extent is our foundation interdependent? Independence is bullshit, and being overly dependent is not obviously for anyone a good thing. That develops, we we become codependents. Interdependence is the only option, and it is not an obvious distinction. And it does not negate your individuality and your, um, yeah, the extent to which you are independent. It is a complement. It is an adding to. It is an addition. It is more, not less. Interdependence is the key. I could go on about that for <laughs> ever. I think. So with that, I, I think that's enough. Um, I don't have any other notes to really share about Ernest. Just enjoy. Uh, it's a real treat. It really, I think the episode kind of starts off um, like a normal conversation. It's sort of slow, but it really builds up. I got a lot out of it, and I think you will too. So stick with it and, and trust that it's really going to build up. It's going to get really juicy. Kind of, Kind of ages as you go. <laughs> All right. With that, enjoy. Thank you for joining me. Here is my good friend, Ernest Miller. You know, they, um, this is actually good material, believe me. They have this casing that I just, I don't know, it kind of grosses me out. And it's easy to take off. So mm -hmm. do you want to try one? Uh, no. No, I didn't think uh, so. I'll leave the bisons to you. The bisons for me. Yeah. This is a good meal in and of itself. I'll be ready for tomorrow. Yeah, I saw the protein content. <laughs> They're pretty good. Um, but I, you brought pineapple. You remember bringing pineapple? Yeah, we had pineapple somewhere, um, and you just said, yes, pineapple. Love them. I do. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that. I think I remember that. Well, I'm glad you were willing to join me. Um. You drove all the way from LaSalle. All the way from Northwest Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. There's a song that comes to mind. Anyway. All right. Well, I can see that you're going to wait for me to to get us moving here, right? <laughs> it's your show. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I don't always have to do that with a lot of people. A lot of people oh, really oh, want to talk. Oh, mm-hmm. A lot of people really just, they just go. Like you know, we do a little warm-up and it's like, all right, I think I know where we're You know, going. I'm a bit shy and introverted. Uh, yeah. But you've, I guess, yeah, let's just talk about the one that you mentioned um, that we agreed is is good, is a good topic, the pandemic of racism. Yeah. Because there are very few, to be frank, people who I think can even talk about that tactfully let alone with a certain kind of qualification that i get to have on this show uh never mind even just the number of friends that i have that i think can you know 
I am surrounded by a plethora of white men. There is no denying that. Not only, but certainly a lot. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> obviously, that does come to mind with you. Sure. Yeah. And you already brought it up, so you made it easy for me. Yeah. <laughs> so, you are referring to... Um two live stream dialogues in which I participated, um, one in June and one in September. Um, the oh, li- they were that recent? Yes. The, oh. the live stream dialogue in June had a U.S. focus, though we had a global audience, um, roughly 34 countries. Um, Holy moly. That's a lot of countries. Though. That's a lot of countries. <laughs> and wow. the September live stream dialogue had an international focus. Um, so a panel of educators from different corners of the world. Um, and it is a reminder to us that the scourge of racism, the scourge of anti-blackness um, is global. And we must attend to it. Um, so these two dialogues were, um, organized by the LaSallian Association of Colleges and Universities. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just give you a preface. Like I'll probably say this in the intro, obviously that you. Oh, we're not taping it. No, we are. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) I showed you, I was hitting record. (laughs) Um, in the intro intro, which is. I'll do that separately. I'll probably acknowledge you're uh, obviously part of your identity, if you will, mm-hmm. as Christian, as, as Christian brother. Um, and to me, I'm guess I'm guessing that relates to how you'd have an international audience. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's not. I mean, you were a big deal, but that is <laughs> part of the connection because of obviously being um, connected through the um, Franciscan. No. Uh, why am I? Blanking on the... The Global Lasagna Network of... Yeah, but what's the... the... Brothers of the Christian Schools. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know it's not Jesuit, it's... um... Lasallian. Isn't there another word? Why am I... No, there's no other word? No. Lasallian. Okay, yes, well then that. (laughs) Descriptive term. I'm making up another word in my head then that isn't fitting. But that's just a... Yeah, so a global network, right? Um, Yes. Yeah. Many countries involved for that reason, to say the least. Exactly. Um, so is this conversation that happened last September framed with a Christian perspective or just a human perspective? Both. I mean, the, yeah. the two are intersect, um, right? A Christian perspective is not devoid of a human perspective. Um, yes. I've heard. Yeah. yeah definitely. <laughs> um, but yes, we were in part um, looking at what is the the call what is the urge what is the demand of lasallian catholic education today as it regards um, this pandemic uh, of racism so again the june live stream dialogue had a u.s focus and the september uh, live stream dialogue had an international focus Um, and subsequently i've written an article um, that sort of uh, further uh, illustrates the global pandemic um, of racism. There, there are some people who would p- 
point fingers more or less as racism U.S. problem. No, it's a global problem, right? Uh, W.B. Du Bois in 1903 wrote that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. And I extend that by saying the problem of the 21st century is the problem of the color line. And, and saying it's the color line is more precise, right? Uh, we're, we're talking about color. I just saw you get in the zone. So, so cool. <laughs> Go on, though. This is, this is it. This is the... The foundation of much of your education, which obviously I also acknowledge you literally which, are a teacher, but go on. I, yeah, my education is wholly incomplete. Um, well, I mean, your capacity yeah. to educate, let me clarify. Yeah. Yeah. A daily struggle, yes. Um, <laughs> but w- we got to step back and remind ourselves that race is a false construct, right? There is no biological reality to the notion of race. So when we say the black race and the white race, and then we go and talk about the Asian race and, right, there is no such thing, right? We can talk about peoples, right? But notwithstanding the fact that race is a false construct, meaning it is a a social, ideological construct, that has its origins in the enlightenment of all time periods, right? And as it migrated to the U.S., right, it took on a a different ferocity, if you will, in terms of the institution of slavery and how then the institution of slavery further informs uh, how race plays out um, in our uh, society, right? And so if anyone is really interested in trying to understand this construct, its origins, right, um, among the places I suggest is chapter five of the Cornell West Reader. Um, I, I know no other place that can give you a good, solid introduction to the pseudoscience and the pseudoscientists and philosophers and mathematicians who all contributed to this uh, narrative, this construct called race. I wish we had that here because, yeah, that is something you introduced me to. And he is uniquely mm-hmm. uh, articulate and well-informed in that regard. Um, who, who, when you're, you refer to how these people in this international context thought it was a U.S. problem, why, why do you believe that's something that people perceive? Pro- um, so... It wasn't necessarily persons um, involved in the dialogue itself, but as I prepared to write an article post the international dialogue, um, I wanted to address that because I wanted to cite some uh, George Floyd cases, some uh, Breonna Taylor cases, elsewhere in the world, right? And there are. And there are plenty yeah. um, okay. throughout Latin America, in parts of Europe, and so on and so forth, right? Um, this uh, encounter between law enforcement and men and women of color, uh, particularly men and women of dark hue, um, is a global phenomenon, um, so in this article, given limited space, um, I cite um, 
situations in Mexico and in Brazil, but you can probably cite most of South America, right? Um, and then I cite several instances in various European countries. Um, I cite instances in South Asia, um, and so on and so forth. Do you encounter much resistance in general to the perspective of race or the declaration that race is a construct? Is that something that you think we're moving forward with an understanding of or? No, I, I think too often, yeah, there, yeah. <laughs> I, I think too often when we talk about race and racism, um, we don't offer any of the backstory, if you will. Um, like what I, you just paraphrased. Exactly, right. Exactly. And I think that until we get to the point where we can stop using the language of black race and white race, right? Sometimes even on you know, how we have to fill out forms, you know, and they ask you, what's your ethnicity? And then they ask you, what is your race, right? Um, yeah, where I can, when they give you the option to say um, either none of the above, or I don't want to say, I've been opting, I, I, I don't want to say, because the saying I'm of the black race is not accurate, right? Right. Um, in various, uh, when, when, you know, some of our LaSallean institutions or whatever it might be are doing a survey or whatever, um, you know, it seems like surveys always need to have, you know, ethnicity and race, right? Um, and I've sort of pushed back on that. And then I'll get a response saying that, well, we use these categories because we're following the, 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 the standard um, that the federal government uses, right, um, when it collects data, right? So in order to sort of maintain some sort of consistency of how data is collected, we use the same categories, right? Um, but at least as part of continuing to educate one another and ourselves, um, understanding um, the backstory, understanding the origins um, of of race is is key, um, in my opinion. So we have to know the history. We need to, to know say the history. The least. Yes. And in order to do that, we have to be willing to agree on certain terms, certain context, and then tell the story the same way. Mm -hmm. That's called education, I believe. Yes, and, uh, and as I as I point that out in the most um, sort of rudimentary, elementary way, I say it because, or say it in those terms because the way I perceive it is that's I, I'm not sure we're tackling that in any way. No, not in any. Not even a not even a little bit. Yeah, not in any deep way. So. Um, and if you move too far, don't worry about it. We can uh, fix it later. But if you want to move it closer to as, the edge as of the I, table. As I say. Yeah, lean back, but move it to the edge. As I like to say, um, both in conversation as well as when I have an opportunity to put it in writing, we need 
to adopt a paideia. This is basically long education form writing. Right. This is just paideia, right? Beautiful <laughs> Greek word, ancient Greek term that refers to a deep education, not mere schooling, right? And I think too much of what we do today is mere schooling. It's about how do I... Um, it means to uh, end. Uh, success, right? It's all about naked success, right? And paideia... Within a certain context. Within a certain context, yes. Um, and success in and of itself is not bad. It's about how do we leverage success towards what is significant, right? And so paideia... Well, the context is the key. In other words, our mm -hmm. values, mm -hmm. whether we are conscious of them or not, drive the context and maintain the context. Mm -hmm. So that's right. where you're pointing out, I, the way I would phrase it is it's a very mechanistic, mm -hmm. this plus this yeah, equals utilitarian. this, utilitarian, and yep. yeah, industry-driven. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And that's pretty clear from a you know, from a very, from most perspectives, that's pretty clear. It's not obviously the case once you get into very, f a very specific liberal, so to speak, artistic uh, context for mm -hmm. education, but mm -hmm. I'm seemingly that's not the norm. Obviously, you know, that was my experience and mm -hmm. you support that experience in your work. But the key thing I'd like to unpack. And also, I do want to get into the Christian component with you. Um, just didn't want to start there. <laughs> Is the the fact that that's not the norm. And can it become? Does it? You, you've kind of already suggested that it needs to become the norm. But what needs to take place for that is what I'm curious about. What needs to shift or what do we need to become more aware of in order for the educational norms to improve so paideia that's a fun one to unpack yeah. <laughs> that's what we're unpacking so paideia <laughs> calls for formation to attention what does that mean attention to what is significant what is important as opposed to superficiality and today in our society, one can make the case that we are caught in a net of superficiality, right? And in some ways, our educational system further supports um, this uh, superficiality, right? So we need to recapture, we need to recommit to an understanding of individuality within community. That is, individuality distinct from individualism, right? That it's just about me. But individuality, attention to self, but also understanding that self is part of a whole that we that our individuality we live we exist within community indeed we exist in multiple levels and kinds of community so the great task that we have is building community and as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. would say the beloved community 
right? How do we build the beloved community? And that is a urgent task, but it is also the long haul, right? The, the, the struggle for justice and the struggle for peace that is concurrent with this uh, attempt to recommit ourselves, this need to recommit ourselves to individuality within community um, is a struggle for the long haul. It's a, a long distance run, to put it in a sports uh, metaphor. Right. <laughs> and so I, I, I'm not convinced that the way we are educating today um, is preparing us to achieve those high ends, those high ideals, right? Um, again, it's too much about me um, and my gains um, and my space, right? Um, instead of um, how self fits within uh, a larger whole, the, right? So. Well said, well said, and the... I'm thinking of what questions, and yes, well said. The uh, the need for understanding your individuality within the collective, if you will, mm -hmm. what you call community, mm -hmm. nigh upon us that we need to understand that. And what maybe it'd be fun to unpack and explore and just kind of ruminate about what it what it looks like for individuals to function with an awareness of themselves in relationship to a community or a collective differently than today. And we could get pretty creative with that. We can get pretty, you know, you referenced MLK Jr. Uh, I've always enjoyed his context of interdependence. You may or may not have introduced me to that particular, uh, I guess, speech he gave, I forget when, but that the need for understanding your only you're not really ever independent that's a that's a total fantasy it's crazy to even want that which we can get to and being too dependent is of course unappealing and mm -hmm. dis and destructive and limiting interdependence is mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. intended and only real option for <laughs> for living. everyone for, for life for, for being good living. for yeah. being well and for being alive whether it's good or not mm -hmm. and his whole point is very much um, understanding it in the, you could even say superficial or mundane, just in terms of look at where your water, how do you get your water? How's your air clean? How does you get your milk this morning? The milk man, how did you, you don't grow your own food. You don't sew your own um, fabrics. You didn't build your own house, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone is interdependent, of course. And what I always enjoyed about that that particular context of just the community is that it's true in every context. It's a That's a microcosm of certain macrocosms and a macrocosm of certain microcosms. Within the body, it's also true, meaning literally my own <clears throat> flesh and blood and bones. Mm -hmm. And then within the larger, the bigger the scale, it's still true for life. So in a sense that gets to I don't want to control where this goes in terms of how we envision it, but it sounds like, because I've certainly noodled on some of this before, it sounds like a 
reforming of an understanding of being human mm -hmm. and life, being human and being a human living, mm -hmm. living as a human. And to suggest that there's more, of course, than your individualism and your individual success, quote unquote, seems so freaking obvious. And yet it seems also incredibly, I, to me, daunting to imagine that not that kind of what I would call absolutism or excess uh, losing momentum or losing power. What needs to gain power? Is it just like I was saying, neighborliness? Is it just, I mean, that seems like a great start. That, that excites the hell out of me, neighborly attitudes. And we hear, how often do we hear that when you ask someone, do you know your neighbors? Oftentimes mm. the answer is no, right? That is something, you know, and how sad. our parents <laughs> and older folks will say has changed, right? Um, that we don't know our neighbor as well as we did decades ago, right? So that's a, well, a commentary on our society. Yeah, and the easy reductionist tendency would be to think we have to go back. And I think you and I are both already making it clear that that's absurd. The, going, the, con, the idea of going back is depressing, quite frankly. There's no better scenario that I personally would like to go back to. It's a matter of what do we need to learn. I certainly don't want to go back to when we were quote-unquote neighbors, even though, yeah, I, I remember good things about the neighborhoods when I was growing up. Going forward does seem to only be possible with a reevaluation of what we've learned because of our excessive experiment here. I think mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge that this is a fork in the road. It seems like a fork in the road in terms of if we continue down this path of what I'm calling excess, mm -hmm. it really looks kind of bleak. So, and mm -hmm. that doesn't mean it was better before, mm -hmm. but there's probably something we need to, it might be good to make a very important turn. What are those turns? So <laughs> we go, we can begin. I guess the race part is relevant mm -hmm. to why not to be going back, yeah. as is the Christian mm -hmm. thing that mm -hmm. I want to get to. But. Yeah, we can go to line 38A of the Apology, where Plato Socrates says that the unexamined life is not worth living, right? And that applies to both self and community, self and society, right? That we need to constantly, not to the degree that it kills us, but we need to, as an ongoing part of our daily life, examine self and examine community. Right, And what we could identify as where we have sort of a dearth um, in the, the, the values that I think you are trying, that you're grappling with that we need um, to move forward and, and continuing to, to move towards becoming a beloved community is this... Um, contestation between market values and ethical and moral values, right? Um, one could say that market fundamentalism is overwhelming 
moral and ethical values, right? And so how do market, we market say that again? Market values, mm -hmm. right? Like um, consumerism, for example, as, as a market value, right? Um, and ethical moral values, community, family, joy, um, and so on and so forth, compassion. Um, how do we allow those values, um, those assets, if you will, um, to blossom, right? Um, and so part of our society, again, you know, is pushing more and more um, the marketplace, right? And so this is not about saying I shouldn't have an iPhone or I shouldn't have a laptop, so on and so forth. But when all of these sort of things um, sort of become um, our little demigods, right? That they that they become um, the, 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 the 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 source of our happiness. Is it fair right? to say the lang the what you're referring to is the language of commodification and becoming yeah. Yeah, everything I mean, becoming a commodity? Yeah. Like the exactly. the relationship with everything is commodified. Commodified. Uh huh. Uh -huh. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a. That's a seemingly increasingly, and I'm happy it is, um, provocative and, and popular perspective. And that seems like a good thing for it to become more clear to people that that might be the case. Um, I didn't even think that we would get to that, but that's that's exciting to me that you would frame it that way. Can you, before I ask anything else, just tell me more about that. For yourself well again i'm drawing on it's more than just you know materialism there's something more even unintentionally nefarious about it what i think what you're kind of hitting at yeah it, it, mere materialism it, isn't isn't all that new yeah but what we're talking about what seems to be driving our society today is you could say um, uh, a certain emptiness, right, that we have within us, right? You were referring a moment ago about the, the body, right? Um, which- <laughs> That's the lens through which everything mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. most effectively contextualized for me. And, and, and so- Especially because we can, like you say about mm -hmm. race, at the end of the day, it's how we all relate anyway. And, and it and, proves and, that we're all- And just to reach back <laughs> to where we were a, a bit ago, um, Resma, uh, Reza Minicum, um, a, uh, a therapist, a somatic therapist, um, a trauma therapist based in Minneapolis, he is, among others, um, is really honing in on when we talk about white supremacy, he says it's about white body supremacy, right? And exactly, that's him. And he is saying that ultimately the 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 this that racism white Somatic supremacy abolitionism is within us holy shit right it's within us and until we get it out of our systems right out of our bodies it's going to remain um, yeah so he has written can i a, read this the yeah, opening he, on the he has written a book called my grandmother's hands um this is why i do this podcast this is this is big shit here. I'll just read this opening mm -hmm. on the page. Uh -huh. Somatic abolitionism, I've never heard of this gentleman, is a living, embodied practice and culture that requires endurance, adjustment, stamina, and discernment. 
Um, these can be built day by day through reps. These communal life and invitational reps will temper and condition your body, your mind, and your soul to hold the charge of race. And then he talks about his course. So he's, did he come up with this term somatic abolitionism? Uh, I'm not sure if, if it originates with him, but certainly he is popularizing it for sure. It's an emergent form of growing up and growing into a more fuller energetic human. Why do we need it? There's a lot here that I have to look at, to say the least. Sure. And among, um, in addition to his book, uh, he has some wonderful uh, interviews, including one oh, with WBS. Christy Tippett That's what you were on, on her uh, public radio show, On Being. WBS is what again? I know On Being, yeah. WBS is what? White body? White body supremacy. Supremacy. Yeah. All right. Why don't you go back? Let's go back to you putting that into your terms. There's so much, obviously, to look at there. <laughs> no, I just, I just wanted to reach back to this notion about the significance of our bodies, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, how can you avoid it, right? It's either you, you recognize what you and everyone else inherently are, human, and you have to be willing to agree. That has to be part of our consent that we're body, we're bodies. But we, in the agreed upon context can only, as far, as far as I can see it, that either has to be a part of it or it has to be the starting point for the agreed upon context. I don't know if we can honestly break these kinds of supremacies and um, I think, again, absolutisms and absolutist tendencies without that because what you're speaking to about this dearth, as you put it, um, is a... I believe, this is where I'll get into the Christian component, as I suspect it is relevant. Obviously, I don't know. And I don't know if it's unique to Christianity, but the the myth of <clears throat> a Christian God <laughs> looks to me like, and you already acknowledged that it goes at least back to the Enlightenment, but I think it's much further back than that. The myth of the Christian God looks like it has some influence on our psyche such that we, in part, project what actually matters to be a fiction and a fantasy and a land of make-believe, not the body. It's a negation of the body. If And it doesn't necessarily have to be either or, but it looks often like a negation of the body. In a very... <laughs> often paradoxical way, um, there's a lot to it. But somehow I, I think there's a an unfortunate link, because I don't think that just critiquing Christianity or even criticizing Christianity is, is a even appealing course of action, but it's hard not to see the link between Christianity and a certain negation of our collective and our community and our wholeness and our bodies and what's been happening <laughs> for a long, long time and certainly still happening today. In other words, there's no denying that the most concerning thought processes that I perceive are those held by people who identify in part as Christian. And that's just straight up fact. There's no <laughs> getting around that. And it's cuckoo, of course, 
as evidenced by our conversation, I don't have a problem perceiving myself in a Christian context. You obviously identify as a Christian brother. How does that, how do we handle that when such a, I mean, that kind of belief option can hijack the species so dramatically? I don't know what we're going to do about that part. Well, uh, again, <laughs> a short response is referring to how in many ways over time, still today, that there are people who profess to be Christian, who profess to be followers of, of Jesus, who misappropriate the religion. But the, and that's not new, of yes, course. Yes, that is not that's new. That's far right? from new. That's yeah. centuries. Um, correct, of right? Practice. And and so again, we <laughs> I make reference to <laughs> others who continue to um, battle, try to undo um, all of what you're referring to, but it, it, it's an ongoing struggle, right? Because, well, but I also sometimes wonder to what extent is that even just part of my own obsession? Like, is it even a big thing? It, I, I go back and forth because I know there are lots of places where people celebrate more than struggle as Christians. It's a weird, like, celebrate. I, in other words, the well, the phenomenon in this country looks like. And you had obviously slavery. You had the KKK. You had all of the, and that's an oversimplification of our history to say the least. And many of these were Christians. Of course, that's my yeah. point. And it's still happening, of mm -hmm. course. Like just three weeks ago, mm -hmm. the uh, per, seemingly a lot of white Christians mm -hmm. stormed the Capitol. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> it's a certain Christian nationalism, right? That that is finding its way. Yeah, and I can't tell um, if it's really. It seems like a big deal, but I don't uh, want to blow. You know. No, it is a big deal to the degree that it could lead to an insurrection and to a mobocracy. It is a big deal. Yeah, that's a term you used the other week when we were talking too. But what? Yeah, and I guess that's to even call it a big deal seems so childish. But mm -hmm. that's the point. Like, if it is a big deal, not just in our history, but in our present. God damn. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> um, that's why this neighborly focus seems like, I mean, yeah, that, I'm trying not to go in circles, but, but, it's, but it's where we're at. It, it's hard to perhaps uh, in this moment to really get deep into it, but not, no, you can do not it. Knowing it not knowing if, if you know, if listeners don't have a a background in the Christian tradition, right? Oh, the people to, who may be listening to this? To to understand well, let's just pretend they know everything we're to, talking to about. To understand <laughs> right where's the cleavage, right? Um to what do you mean by that word? Uh, the cleavage, uh the, the, the gap, uh the okay. split. Um right. that these folks that we see uh, pushing um, 
or is pushed by this kind of white Christian nationalist narrative, that's bankrupt, right? In terms of the true Christian tradition, that's bankrupt, right? And we need to help folks, or I need to help folks just simply understand that fact, that that is not real Christianity. But we also have to recognize that the same abuse of religion is innate in almost every major religious tradition. Let's take a look. Well, that's a, why a I don't look. want to pick on Christianity. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. let's take a look, just to, again, provide context, let's take a look at uh, Hinduism, most especially in India, mm-hmm. right, of how Muslims in India, in the wake of Hindu nationalism, is being abused, how the Rohingya peoples, who predominantly are Muslim in, um, in neighboring uh, Burma, now called Myanmar, right? Um, again, um, religious abuse in, in part, right? So it's, it's an international, global phenomenon of how religion can be misused and abused um, against uh, other peoples. I think religion is the key word to understand. And I think um, do we have these obvious examples of quote-unquote religions. There's, a, there's even a group of Buddhists that I think are engaged in violence towards some uh, Muslim. Is yes. that, that the one in Correct, in, in, in Myanmar. I mean, exactly. That's the group. Okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear you say shifting from Hindus to Buddhists, so to speak. <laughs> um, yeah, the paradox is, is crazy, given the conventional understanding of Buddhism that we're at least taught in. Mm-hmm. Exactly. The academic settings. But, um, and if you read any Buddhist text, but I think the, okay, so religion, obviously, in general, functions in the, you know, in the institutional sense, in the conventional ist or ism sense, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as, I suppose unintentionally, it seems, a <clears throat> a complete package. And this might get to the the subtle danger of what religion really can cause. It obviously doesn't have to, but what it can cause is, again, why I think it's a mm-hmm. negation of what the body really is, which is a constantly changing, inherently interdependent and interconnected whole um, aspect of the greater whole. But the key there is change and constant change and newness. And what religions seem to have caused, and it's all of them potentially, not just Christianity, it just seems like Christianity has had a uniquely powerful effect mm-hmm. globally. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's story. Mm-hmm. Um, is almost like a, like a um, like a chip that was <laughs> like an implant that blinds us to our own uh, hypocrisies. We don't allow for something new as a function of our beliefs. 
And that's crazy. Mm-hmm. You're shaking your head like you and, get and, it. And, and I know and, I'm trying and, to say it. And, and so <laughs> let me see if I'm hearing you correctly. Um, that religion, generally Christianity, we can pinpoint in particular at the moment. Um, we don't even have to, but do- sure. Doesn't, is it what you're suggesting, doesn't uh, easily move with uh, human progress? You could say it as progress. It's not inherently progressive mm-hmm. though um because clearly tech you know if, if progress and technology go hand in hand we sure, know no, that they're no, inherent yeah mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. guess i'm speaking to an a linked issue for all of our meth our methods and motivations which is to strive for a completion and to me that needs that needs to be the key soundbite are we what regardless of like you mentioned all these silly gadgets i have like what am i what's my intention with them like is it to fix myself or make myself whole or perfect and complete of course not these are it's just part of self-care just like breathing well and Mm -hmm. moving and eating and what we just did in the sauna um i think we have an attitude and i think that my perspective is that christianity has catalyze this attitude in a uniquely powerful way, but it's not unique to Christianity. It's just the effect of Christianity seems uniquely to have been amplified for, for whatever mm-hmm. reasons. Maybe it has to it's do more with, visible. Uh, and it might have to do with race mm-hmm. too. Um, given the, the motivations of the white man, <laughs> the white European. Yeah, man. There's been a lot of, there was the uh, drive, the manifest destiny, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Correct. Colonialism and imperialism. Yeah. yeah. Um, that might be part of it, but the key subtle detail, I mean, I'm sure it is part of it. It seems pretty obvious that it is, but the key subtle detail is that it seems like we've all been infected with this. Hence the materialism, the commodifying of everything, mm-hmm. striving for some kind of completion or ending and negation unintentionally, of the need for not just progress, but newness. Progress and newness aren't inherently the same thing. I mean, actually something new, something unexpected, something mysterious, Mm -hmm. a a reflection of the inherent mystery of existence. uh, Interesting, I was just going to to go there. Yes, that's the dearth. We negate that there's inevitable mystery. And, Unintentionally, and 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 mystery, right, is a, like that a, is a key aspect <laughs> of the Christian tradition. If I could just make that point, ideally um, it is. Yes, ideally, but it's one could say <laughs> that it is this um, commodified world in which we live. It is the the utilitarian utilitarian. Um, um, orientation that we tend to have, the, the directions that we tend to be pushed, that l- causes us, that pushes us away from delving into mystery, right? So or I, even accepting that it's, in, it's a good thing. Yeah, so I lift up someone <laughs> like Howard Thurman, right, who was a mystic, right, a yes. 20th century mystic. I know, you right? like him, yeah. And he's passed, right? He has, yes, yeah. he died in um, 1980, 81, somewhere around there. Just around, just a yeah. couple days ago, so, yeah. So, so I, I think you're onto something. You're, you're spot on by allowing this notion of mystery um, 
to uh, emerge here in our uh, conversation because I think that is part of what we are missing. We're, we're not comfortable. I think right? that's the biggest People are piece. not comfortable in the unknown to allow, as you are saying, newness to wash over them, right? We are caught in uh, a world of certainty, right? Certitude has its place, as opposed to being comfortable with doubt. Hmm. Doubt isn't even necessarily what I champion or what I'm what I'm interested in celebrating. I even I even because yeah that that makes me think of that movie. I know you <laughs> like Meryl yeah. Streep movie and the late Mr. Hoffman, etc. Um, at all, it's a good movie, of course. But that I don't think you need to have that doubt. Actually, I'm not sure. I don't know if you remember, I wrote this pretty long essay back in college that I titled Doubt One Part or Doubt Part One, Part Two, Part Three. It was a really transformative experience writing it. And there's still aspects of it that I remember to this day. That was 2006 when I wrote that. And there's still components of it that really planted the seeds for mm-hmm. what I'm, how I'm relating to um, life at this point, mm-hmm. 15 years later, and nearly 15 years later. The the word doubt doesn't sound as doesn't hit as home for me as it uh, as it might for you because to me doubt sounds like there's a discomfort with it. I'm actually saying that being comfortable with the inevitable, <laughs> unknowable nature of reality is necessary. Mm-hmm. Being comfortable with the inevitable newness of the mystery of life is necessary. And I believe that we've unintentionally, and the the only way in which Christianity seems unique is that it, again, amplified the effect like a ship that's been planted into all of us unintentionally, and we've just reinforced it. And the um, quote unquote commodifying of everything is just the excessive uh, effect of this implant. We, like you said, are so tragically uncomfortable with nothing, with nothingness. <laughs> mm-hmm. If mystery suggests some sort of nothingness, if the mystery of existence suggests that maybe there isn't anything, that's not in conflict with what you just, as you just said, a certain understanding of quote unquote Christianity. That's not in conflict with a general mysticism that's not in conflict with actual empirical, as I perceive it, I think evidence of the universe and, and quote unquote reality. So how can we be, can we even a small amount of us to even a fraction (laughs) to even a small extent, uh, move in that direction? That's, that's the most specific question that I am wrestling with. And I don't know if there's any other way. To me, anything else just looks like more of this This commodity, yes, Mm -hmm. which is tragic Mm -hmm. at best. 
Like it doesn't make me happy to imagine us just solving the um I don't know, pick whatever crisis we supposedly mm -hmm. have to solve. Mm -hmm. Climate change. Um, <laughs> oh, for God. Actually, so. well, I would put that in its own unique category because that is the most, seem, that seems like the most imminent threat, the one that we do need to rally around. Mm -hmm. uh, and I would suggest that we try to actually solve things, mm -hmm. solve that one. But of course, if we go about it, as we tend to with the intention of quote unquote fixing the problems and thinking we'll be in control and there won't be another mm -hmm. mystery to deal with, then yeah, we won't have learned the lesson. I guess that's the key. Can we learn even in that context of dealing with quote unquote climate change, can we learn this lesson? And I'm not sure that we enough of us have even recognized that that's the lesson. I'm only starting to really believe that that's the lesson. I like in the last maybe six months. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 if what you're saying is accurate, and I I think it largely is, then we ask why, right? Again, going to Paideia, right? Uh, we why? we we are we are not attentive to it, right? Because we don't believe it's affecting me. What is it again? Let's clarify it. Uh, so again, uh, you're referring to this notion of paideia? Um, yeah, where well, you said it's affecting me. Is that what you meant, the paideia? Uh, 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 meaning the, the issue of climate change is, oh, uh, is okay. not, right? Yeah. Again, this individualism, right? So, <laughs> right, I, right, right, so right. I'm not concerned about that's it because, it, because it's yeah, their yeah. problem. It's not here. It's not, right? So mm. that's what I'm referring to as. And so... Again, the reference to Paideia is this need for formation to attention. We're not attentive to these real issues, right? Uh, we're, we're caught up in mirage. We're caught up in superficiality, right? As opposed to attention to what is significant, right? Or at least seemingly most people are because clearly there are some there are there, there are people there are, who do there are and care. um and i even to, to, i shy away from saying things like most because i don't know that that's just my perception sure but uh <laughs> joe biden had an interesting line in his inaugural speech that has stayed with me since last week where he says enough of us came together for all of us, to carry all of us. That's the key. Yeah, what is enough, enough of, of us? us came together to carry all of us, right? So if we push that open just a bit, we could say that um, we need to continue to have a, a strong plurality or a majority of of people of goodwill, let's put it that way, right? Irrespective of what someone's religious tradition is and all of that, people of goodwill to would, yeah, be attentive. Say, irrespective of these <laughs> constructs, these identifiers, these abstractions. I mean, let's be frank. Like, it's all just made up 
um, references. They're just reference. Like, it, like you said, if race is a construct, so is Christianity. So is being Buddhist. So is being any of this shit. It's all a construct. Let's be frank about it. <laughs> yes, but of different <laughs> meanings. Yeah, but at the and, end of the day, yeah, to be really yeah. glib or to be really blunt and, you know, just cut the shit about it, it's all, we're just human. That's the only thing that we really know for sure. Sure. And so, so as religious, you were saying, <laughs> so religious traditions are one way for some peoples who are of that tradition to seek an understanding of what does it mean to be human. It's a possibility. How exactly. to, sure. if I could put it this way, do community, how to build community, right? So for some, uh, Islam is a lens. For others, Buddhism is a lens, For and so on and so forth, right? Of seeing the world yeah, and, and being your, in the world. Your freedom, so to speak, to have those subjective choices to make those subjective choices for yourself is something that is is good that freedom it's if it isn't in at this stage if it isn't in if the choice is not framed within the context of i think the species it seems a little silly to me that's all mm -hmm. and i know you yeah that's what you're saying in a in your own way too <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think, uh, but by what? If, if I may reference it, I think uh, Pope Francis's uh, encyclical Laudato Si, our common home. Didn't read that one, but I loved Fratelli Tutti. Say, how do I say it? Uh, Fratelli Tutti. I loved yeah. that. In fact, you I read have, Fratelli Tutti. Not only I'll tell you more, but not only have I read it, I'm okay. So actually, I will tell you quite a bit. I'm. No, I won't, because I don't want to speak too frankly about it. But I'm writing a book, and I do actually, I did read Fratelli Tutti, and I refer to it quite a bit. I'm uh, helping organize a symposium in April that's going to focus on, uh, uh, no, uh, no, that's another event. I'm organizing a part of our annual John the 23rd Pachamantera's lecture series at LaSalle um, in March is going to focus on Fratelli Tutti. Here, I'll read you, I mean, I have... A bunch of quotes right here and that i'm interested in that mm -mm. let us dream then as a single human family as fellow travelers this is pope francis sharing the same flesh as children of the same earth which is our common home mm -hmm. each of us bringing the richness of his or her or I'll, I'll even add or there or them or their beliefs and convictions each of us with his or her or their own voice brothers and sisters all etc 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 yeah i have a whole file of fratelli tutti quotes here because it's an incredible i guess a book really yeah. <laughs> i loved it yeah and i i think he's a champion for the kind of quote-unquote progress that we're referring to so if you have read fratelli tutti then you're going to i think then be overwhelmed by laudato c when did he write that one laudato c i remember was his first that. um social encyclical it came out in june of 2015 i think i read yeah, I remember reading part of it. Uh -huh. I did read part of it. But I wasn't planning to write a book when I read it. <laughs> um, Fratelli Tutti really hits quite a few nails on the head, in my opinion. That's great. That's great. Yeah. Of course, because it's it doesn't matter. These These arbitrary identifiers are, in this context, meaningless. In the context of um, your creativity, 
they're gorgeous. They're important. They're incredibly valuable. They're, and that's kind of, in a way, what we're referring to is a reframing of the context of why to create. Like, in a way, if creativity is a is only part of the drive to create a commodity or to express your individualism or your individuality even. It just looks like a function of some sort of dysfunctional tendency as far as I can see it. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm oversimplifying it, but couldn't we be creative in a different way to primarily, as I believe this work is about, to primarily be engaged in catalyzing newness. Um, I think that's, that's exactly what's possible. Mm-hmm. Creativity to me is the most, is a sign of a, of, of a really healthy um, body. <laughs> yeah, creativity and innovation. Well, innovation, yeah, and innovation is an interesting word because it's often suggested to be the um, the the value, the primary value of capitalism, um, and the larger technocratic state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So your body language to me gives the impression that you're not sure that's true either, or do you? Yeah, yeah. Well, what does that mean to you then, the technocratic state? Well, again, the technocratic state, you referred a moment ago to capitalism. The technocratic state is a branch of, it flows out of um, our uh, capitalistic uh, society, right? It's it, it, it breeds a notion that all our problems can simply be solved by technology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 it proffers this notion that you know, technology is what's going to make us, makes us happy and so on and so forth, right? Um, Things, right? Things, um, material things, right? Again, the technocratic state is in part referring to commodification. Um, Sounds almost entirely, quite frankly. And in many ways, the manner in which technology is commodifying us, it is causing us to lose sight of and to give witness to these ethical, moral values, which I referenced earlier, of where we have a dearth, right? Um, a dearth of... Uh, family and community and love and compassion and justice and trust and empathy right yeah the film the social dilemma really uniquely highlights that the one that came out last year um it points out that the social quote-unquote media scene of the last 15 years is obviously catalyzing some very excessive tendencies but it's it's a showing the all the infection that was already there and the symptoms that we're witnessing are really just representative of some deep infections if you will to keep that medical metaphor alive and i get it and i believe it's that's 
largely the whole thing here is what we're describing is a is a you know we're witnessing our own i think you can see it that you're if you can imagine on a whole seeing the extent to which you're spinning out of control and wanting to stop it <laughs> like in the whole of like this this, this quote unquote civilization or even just species like how can like what does it take for us to just agree to stop a few things or to reorganize ourselves in some very dramatic and ex but potentially exciting ways i don't think there's a need to get rid of technology at all exactly yeah. i actually really like the image of a more star trek kind of future i love it in fact it's just that we're not i mean i'm oversimplifying star trek of course but like i don't have a problem with there being quote like potential drones it's just the compromise is so obvious in the effect of the quote-unquote environment the degradation as one person i remember many years ago put it in this wonderful documentary um <clears throat> that the yeah the it's like inner like outer and this is everything that we're talking about there's a degradation that we witness around us but it is representative of something within us so to speak mm -hmm. and that's not seemingly even though joe biden said what he said and even though we don't have to deal with trump in the same capacity i'm sh i'm not sure we're getting that key factor quickly enough <laughs> no it's not going to happen overnight uh, again it's a um, moving towards right that's where your age is helpful yes right. it's a moving I, towards you have better perspective um, and it's that, about right? a becoming right it's about a becoming right again we're in this for the long haul it's a it's a long distance run I appreciate that. I really do. And uh, you're older. You're not old, but you're older than me. And you, I respect age in the sense of you certainly should have. And I, I know you do have more perspective as a result of your age. No, you've, you've, you've witnessed things that I have only read about or heard about or seen referenced in uh, pop culture or whatever, you know, you've seen way more than I have. Just by virtue of your being awake and, and older. Um, so I think actually suggesting that it's, you know, you, that's an optimistic attitude and I, I, I welcome that. I do, I think it's good. Might I say I'd like <laughs> to hold on to hopeful that I have a hopeful attitude as distinct from optimism. Sure. What's the distinction to you? How do you hear it? Um, I don't hear a key difference. I don't think I know enough. Ho hope. Yeah, I don't hear a key difference. So I'm, of it's, course, I'm lifting hope up as a central uh, Christian value, Christian notion, right? As the Apostle Paul says, you know, these three things last, faith, hope, and love, right? 
um, the, those three values operate together. They hang out in the same neighborhood, right? We can't do without the other, um, if you will. And the greatest of these is love, right? But optimism has sort of a technical um, tinge to it. Um, certainly a more, you know, from a religious point of view, a more secular um, um, tinge, um, orientation, as opposed to hope um, that, um, as King says, I may not get there with you, right? But I have seen, or we could put it differently, I believe that there is a promised land. Um, so I don't know if that's uh, helpful. Um, yeah, no, I, I think, I would say hope has a patience to it from what I'm hearing. Hope has mm -hmm. a, a sort of temperance and measure mm -hmm. uh, commitment to being, to, to maintaining a bird's eye point of view and to being patient and to being, um, to, to seeing it from above, if you will, not getting caught up in the, to, yeah, to maintain an awareness of the the big picture and not to get too lost in the um, every little sentence and every little second, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not to blow things out of proportion, to remember Keep it measured. the whole. Um, mm -hmm. And optimism, you say technical, I guess even just saying ism, it sounds uh, a little forced maybe or a little, uh, void of emotion, if if you will, and that's fair. I think that I, I dig that. So in that regard, you hope <laughs> you have a hopeful attitude, which is welcome. Um, good. Another. Value. That's good. Yeah. Good goodness. <laughs> we we tend not to recognize the goodness in one another. Yeah. Well, we but we'll just folk we'll just leave it at that we can. We can. Yeah. Um yeah, a lot of these conversations right now and I kind of I'm almost a little annoyed at myself about this. Like there's a I value authenticity. <clears throat> Many of these conversations, this is the fifth one in the fourth season of this show. Um, and there's no denying that a lot of these conversations are, are merely for my own benefit. <laughs> but to process things, and but uh, I guess I believe that processing them in mm -hmm. this way is, mm -hmm. is good. Uh -huh. Capital G, as you just pointed out, uh -huh. good. But I, I'm aware there's a potential sort of, I don't think it's pessimistic, but I'm not sure if it's hopeful tone. I know I want to just maintain a sense of being, again, too, maybe too technically realistic. And I wonder, as I'm thinking this through, 
am I compromising a certain sort of warmth and um, trust or uh, ability to just breathe regardless? Am I compromising that by being too or by focusing on being realistic? And it's a question I'm asking myself because I don't want to lose the ability to just breathe and be witness to, obviously, the the beauty of anything, regardless of quote unquote distractions or quote unquote, or any potential distraction or problem. I don't want to lose that ability. I think we all need to do what we can to maintain that and to mm-hmm. uh, support that with each other. I've just noticed in a unique way, a way that I'm a little surprised about, that I'm not feeling compelled to jump on any sort of um, sigh of relief kind of bandwagon, if you will, mm-hmm. which I'm, I'm a little surprised about myself for. <laughs> I guess I'm not sure what to make of that for myself. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm, I'm following you. Yeah. Um, like I get, I mean, I have Amanda Gorman's poem right here. Yeah. I get it. I clearly embrace it. I mean, let's be brave enough. Um, but it doesn't give you hope? I don't relate. I like how you framed or hope. Optimism? No, I don't want to say optimism. Let's forget the distinction anymore. It, but I like your, it does. I guess, I think I'm. I'm feeling... A little distracted by the, you know, it looks like there's, yeah, the bra- the need to be brave does not just, <laughs> one does not simply flip a switch, mm-hmm. this bravery that she calls us to um, embrace. It is not a simple flip of a switch as I see it. And we have made this point many times, have we not? Uh, or I, I have sought to ever imperfectly. Again, it's a it's about a becoming. It's yeah, a, it's a it's a constant moving towards um, to achieve. Again, um, she doesn't use the words, but again, she uh, resident in her articulation of this beautiful poetry is the beloved community. Um, and let's also point out she is a Catholic Christian and <laughs> and she holds up her her faith. Um, and so one can read that as informing and helping form her beautiful poetry. Indeed. And but again, as we can see, it's able to speak to wide swath of peoples, mm-hmm. right? It yeah, has touched yeah. so many people in the body politic. Okay, I'm glad you pointed out that aspect of her identity. And I do think we're nearing an end if, it, if that wasn't obvious. But to reference that detail about her identity, which is arguably our identity, I, I don't dismiss that part of myself. Mm-hmm. 
I'm not suggesting with anything about religion or God specifically, or a Christ, or sorry, a Christian God specifically, that we throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm, I'm asking. Do do we not need to eventually let go of that? And when, if so, when is that? Is it not the time to let go of, in this case, the Christian conception of God? We can call it the Christian conception, but I would honestly even be comfortable saying the general conception of Of, God. Of of the divine. Yes. Now let's end on that. (laughs) No. (laughs) Sorry. No, give me... No, that we ultimately have to give up on the conception of the divine. Can you elaborate? Well, I'm a person of belief, so, um, right? So I am, my belief as a Catholic Christian, as a Christian, is anchored in um, the God of all creation, right? And that we continue to co-create Yes. Uh, can I? I know I'm interjecting. Can maybe the word "give up" isn't the best word. Maybe. Yeah, I don't like that phrase. Maybe what I mean to say is, here, this is actually it, and I think we can leave with this question. You can respond if you want, but I'm okay to leave with this question. Are we relating to this quote-unquote God or divine? truly in the interdependent way that we need to. Amen. (laughs) All right. That's a good question. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You want to wrap it? (laughs) Do you want me to respond? No, I don't want to deprive you of the opportunity. I'm good. I'm good. You're good. Let's leave it with that question. It's a a ripe question. All right. Thank you, my brother. Thank you. This was exactly why I do this shit. All right. Don't burn your hand. (laughs) All right. That's Ernest. And there's our final question. To what extent can our relationship with God become, as I was saying in the intro, and we just ended the episode essentially by asking ourselves, to what extent can our relationship with this quote-unquote God become interdependent? We need that. It's not obvious. We didn't fully unpack why we need that, but we need that. There's a subtle way which, in which we negate the value of life and, and more, gen- obviously, of ourselves, but also of life, of life as it is because of these I'm not even going to, yeah, because of these absurd myths and beliefs and stories. I'm not saying there is no God. I would, that would, that's stupid. It's equally ridiculous to say that. You can't say that without sounding, in my opinion, like a buffoon. Knowing either way is ridiculous. The point isn't that we know. The point is that if you do have this thing called faith, if you are a quote unquote believer, 
be damn sure that your beliefs are not catalyzing a way of relating to yourself and to life and to others in such a way that actually negates the need for newness and the need for consistent um, becoming, consistently becoming. If you are mistaking your ideas and your beliefs for reality, <laughs> for truth, you're just living a life of fiction and fantasy, your own little land of make-believe. You can have the ideas, and, I, and there are many beliefs that make a lot of sense, no matter who you are and what your story. The question is, are they informing how you relate to yourself and to others and to the world in such a way that you're attached and you're closed to something new and to becoming something new over and over and over? Or do they allow you to stay open to the inevitable mystery and mystery mysticism of reality. The former is codependency. <laughs> There's really no point in saying otherwise. The latter is actually probably what your entire belief system is really meant to reinforce for you. Somehow it's just become confused. And that is potentially the primary human problem or, or challenge, but it can be, we can have stories and understandings without that. I know we can, we need to. That probably is the only way for justice, as I said in the beginning. Um, but it is not obvious what's gonna really make that change, what's gonna really change that construct, what's gonna change the context. It's not obvious, but let's keep at it. Let's keep at it, as Ernest reminds us, be patient. It's a process. We're becoming. So thank you again, Ernest. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you again soon. Ta-ta.